And if you turn in your bulletin to the section on scripture reading, I'm going to read Philippians 2, 1 through 11, which is the passage Charles will be preaching on today. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I'm Charles McKnight, pastoral assistant here at Christ Central Church. And as always, I'm always very grateful to have the opportunity to bring you the word of the Lord. Um, As most of you all know, Pastor Howard finished up his sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah last week. And so he's taking a little short break over the next two Sundays to get ready for the next sermon series. So we're excited about that. He also needed a little bit of extra time. And by the way, he wasn't supposed to even lead liturgy this morning. But a couple of minutes before church started, uh, we had a little mix-up with the person leading liturgy. So he jumped right in there. So uh, let's give him a hand just for serving, even when he wasn't supposed to have to serve in that way this morning. But he also needed a little bit of time to work on some other major things coming up in the life of our church. One of which being our 10-year anniversary. Amen for 10 years. And also some other exciting initiatives that we're hoping the Lord will use to help us as a church see the mission and vision that he's given us reach greater fruition. As Pastor Howard mentioned a few, several weeks ago now, I guess, at the town hall meeting, that he and some other leaders from the church will be meeting with all of us. He's already started meeting with some folks, but everyone that's a member at Christ Central will be met with to kind of flesh out what we believe the Lord has set on our horizon. So needless to say, this is truly an exciting time to be a part of Christ Central and what the Lord is doing in and through us. And it's also a time, I believe, that the Lord would have us all to refresh and recommit to leaning deeper into life together here at Christ Central. And that's why when I learned a couple weeks ago that I was going to have the opportunity to talk this morning... It wasn't long before I ended up in the book of Philippians. Why Philippians? Well, because the church in Philippi was similar to us in many ways. They, too, were a church plant, planted by the Apostle Paul. And like us, they were almost at their 10-year anniversary point. And most evidence in the book of the Philippians points towards this being a relatively healthy church and body of believers. But like all churches... The Philippians had their issues. And Paul calls them out in chapter 2 on one critical issue that threatened their unity. And that was the issue of selfishness. 
Look back with me at the beginning of our passage. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, apparently there was some self-seeking, some, some self-serving, some self-centeredness that had developed in this 10-year-old church plant. And Paul knows that if it continues, it will destroy their unity and stunt their future growth. So he tells them to turn away from their selfishness to embrace greater selflessness. Then Paul says, you know what? There's really only one way truly for me to project to you what I mean by selflessness. And that's by reminding you Philippians of the radical display of selflessness by Christ our Savior. And so he tells them in verse 5, have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. Basically he's saying as disciples of Christ, I want you to follow his self-sacrificing attitude. I want y'all to be a cover band who simply plays the cover song of Christ's selflessness. And Paul knows that in order for them to play the cover properly, he needs to replay for them the original recording. And with that said, Paul now proceeds to offer one of the most concise yet robust, one of the most simple yet vivid, one of the most theologically dense yet beautifully poetic verbal images of Christ's humiliation. In other words, Paul spits a few bars about our selfless Savior. And in this description, Paul reminds them and us this morning that Christ relinquished, and he embraced all in obedience. He relinquished divine entitlements, and he embraced human humiliation, all in obedience to the Father. Look back with me at verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul begins by describing Christ relinquishing his letting go of, his sacrifice of divine entitlement. But in order for us to understand just how radical this relinquishing was, we must consider the huge theological truth that Paul begins with, namely that Christ was and is God. Paul says that though he was in the form of God, by form of God, he means that Christ fully possessed the specific quality of God. He means that in his very being, in his very nature, Christ was and is everything entirely and completely all that God is. And because Christ was fully God in his pre-incarnate state. And pre-incarnate, we just mean as he was before he actually came to earth as a man. 
He shared full equality with God with all the advantages, all the rights, and all the privileges, all the pleasures and prerogatives. Christ had all the God entitlements. Yet, Paul says, Christ did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Not something to be grasped. Not something to be clung to. Most of y'all know I got three little girls, and my two-year-old's name is Corinne. Cute kid, right? He didn't have a choice. She didn't have a choice. She looks like a daddy. But Corinne, mm, how do I say this? Corinne doesn't really do new people like that, okay? You're not just going to roll up on Corinne and expect to get a, hey, how you doing? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And then whenever we take her to an unfamiliar place around some unfamiliar people, sometimes even when we take her to a familiar place around some relatively familiar people, that cute little girl, I kid you not, transforms into Spider-Man. And she wraps me in the web of her gangly little arms and holds on for dear life. She clings to me. She clings to me tight. You ever had a kid hold you so tight that you got to like literally peel them off to get them off of you? That's Corinne. Bless her heart. She clings to me for dear life because I'm her familiar place. I represent safety, security, and comfort to her. And with this imagery, with this grasping, clinging imagery, Paul is making the vivid point that Christ, God the Son, with all the privilege, all the comfort, all the resources, Christ who lived in the splendor, security, and safety of his heavenly dwelling, Christ who basked in the joy and the beauty of his perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit didn't cling to any of it. Instead, Christ relinquished it all. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, Paul goes on to show, Christ embraced humiliation. He embraced humiliation. Paul says, Christ, in uh, verse 7, Paul says, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He says, Christ emptied himself. Now, now get this, because all kinds of heresies have developed throughout the history of Christianity, because people misunderstanding what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying Christ emptied himself of something. He didn't empty out his godness. Rather, he emptied himself. He renounced self. See, this emptying didn't come by losing some aspect of his being. But paradoxically, he emptied himself by adding on to himself, adding on to his nature, adding on to his godness, the form of a servant in the likeness of man. 
God became God-man. Not God changed into man, but he remained fully God and added on full humanity. Now, how does that work? I don't know. I'm going to have to ask him when I see him. All we know is that in some profound, mysterious way, Christ, who is fully God, lowered himself into humanity. The most entitled being relinquished it all to embrace humiliation by displaying an attitude of servanthood expressed in human flesh. Christ emptied himself by taking the quantum leap from chilling in glory to slave it in his creation, with his creation, as his creation, for his creation. God became human. He passed through a birth canal into a sin-broken world. And as a human, he embraced all that it meant to be born as a poor Jewish kid in first century Palestine. He crawled on the ground as a baby. He skinned his knee as a little boy. He probably got blisters on his feet. I'm sure every once in a while his lips got chapped. He got hot. He got cold. He got hungry, thirsty, sleepy. He experienced fully what it meant to live physically in a broken world. And he also embraced the total emotional effects of our humanity. Jesus knew what it was like to be misread. He knew what it was like to be misunderstood and mistreated. He knew disappointment. He knew betrayal. He knew deception. He knew what it was like to be ignored. He knew what it was like to be discriminated against. He knew what it was like to be bullied, threatened, disrespected, rejected, deserted, and persecuted. And spiritually, he experienced the most intense attacks from Satan imaginable. Christ embraced humiliation by emptying himself. And Paul tells us this emptying reached a spectacular climax when Christ humbled himself, in verse 8, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ embraced humiliation to the death, literally. And not just any death. Paul intentionally adds the last clause, even death on a cross. Now, you got to get out of your mind for for a second the way that we view crosses today. Understand, during that time, nobody was walking around with a gold cross around their neck. There was no one etching crosses in the side of church pews. No one was going out getting artistic descriptions or displays of crosses tattooed on their body. The cross was seen only as a tool of execution. It was the most torturous, the most shaming way for a person to be killed, arguably, in the history of humanity. It was the worst form of death for what Roman society deemed the worst of criminals. Crucifixion carried all the horror, all the disgrace, all the dehumanization of a lynching. Brothers and sisters, our selfless Savior 
was lynched by way of a cross. Do you see what Paul is trying to portray? Christ went from the highest position possible to the lowest place imaginable. Death. Death by way of a torturous and shameful cross. Brothers and sisters, there has never been and never will be a more radical display of self-sacrifice. This is the original tomb of selflessness. Christ relinquished entitlements and embraced utter humiliation. But why? Why was Christ motivated for such an extreme display of selflessness? Why did Christ come and die? A well-known pastor, theologian, author, John Piper, notes at least 50 reasons Jesus came to die based on various New Testament texts in his book appropriately titled, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. It's a nice little devotional book. I encourage you to check it out if you've never read it in John Piper commercial. But here in our text, Paul doesn't list 50 reasons. He notes only one. One fundamental reason. Obedience. Paul says in verse 8, that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's humiliation was done in obedience to the Father. Christ was obedient. As a matter of fact, he was the most obedient, the most submissive person to ever walk the earth. How do we know? Because the gospels are littered with Christ saying outrageously selfless, obedient things like in John 5, 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven, Jesus said, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Matthew tells us in chapter 26 of his gospel that under excruciating pressure, moments before he would be arrested and be on his way to the cross, Jesus cries out in prayer to the Father saying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not rule his own life. Jesus didn't make unilateral decisions. The father called the shots. The father was the head coach. The son left everything in the father's control. Every action, every move, every decision, every sacrifice was made in submission to and obedience to the Father's plan. And what's, what's interesting about our passage is that Paul also shows that this obedience, this submission, this bowing to the Father's plan didn't end after Christ's death on a cross. Paul reveals at the end of our text that even Christ's exaltation occurred 
in submission to the Father's plan. Look back with me at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God, the Father, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, a whole other sermon could be preached just on those verses right there. But what I want us to pay attention to for our purposes this morning is that even in Christ's exaltation, it was still the work of the Father. Paul says, therefore, God, implied God the Father, has highly exalted him. Even in Christ's exaltation, he maintained complete obedience and dependence. He displayed total humility by submitting to the Father's plan of exaltation and not his own. In other words, Jesus didn't plan his own release party. Jesus didn't exalt himself. Jesus didn't give himself the name upon which every knee should bow and every tongue confess. The Father did. And Christ relinquished his entitlements. He embraced ultimate humiliation. All to what Paul says, the glory of God the Father. We've seen in Paul's replay of Christ's song of selflessness. That Christ epitomized self-renouncement in his relinquishing of divine entitlements and his embracing of utter humiliation, all in obedience to the Father. And so Paul says to the Philippians, that's how I want y'all to sound. That's the attitude that y'all need to have with one another. That's the pattern y'all need to follow. That was Paul's message to the Philippians, and that's the Lord's message to all of us this morning. Christ said, so the Lord is calling us all to greater selflessness for the sake of greater unity, for the sake of seeing God's grace manifest in greater ways in and through us. If we hope to continue to mature and grow in the next 10 years, we all have to embrace a greater level of Christ-like selflessness. And like Christ, that begins with our submission, our obedience to the Lord and to his word. It begins with a greater submission to his will and not to ours. He is our ruler and we must submit ourselves to his agenda, his desires, and his priorities. And at the top of the Lord's priority list is his bride, the church that he died for. The Lord Jesus Christ relinquished all, embraced humiliation to bring us into a new humanity, into a new countercultural community, into his body, into a local church right here at Christ Central, so that we might be able to blast the cover song of his selflessness 
And as we've seen from our Savior, this song of selflessness begins by accepting the fact that it's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's about him. It's about we. It's about, as Paul says, counting others more significant than yourselves. So what does that mean? What's that going to look like? What would it look like for us here at Christ Central to get our song of Christ's selflessness more in tune? Well, I think the declaration for this month that we read earlier together actually paints this picture beautifully when it says, we together know and bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ that we need one another and upbuild one another, admonishing and comforting one another, that we suffer with one another for the sake of righteousness, pray together, together serve God in this world, and together fight against all that may threaten or hinder this unity. Isn't that a beautiful picture? But this kind of selflessness demands that we open up our individual lives and the lives of our families to one another to be known and to know. Now, we're not a mega church, but we are large enough that it is difficult to develop deep relationships with every single person in here. And that's why we've created structures, parishes, community groups, learning communities, youth group, children's ministry, lay ministries. That's why we've encouraged you all to form prayer groups, to form accountability groups, to form support groups or discipleship relationships or mentorship relationships so that you can have the opportunity to know and be known, to serve and be served. But to know and be known is going to require some relinquishing of entitlements, some embracing of humiliation. It's going to require, brothers and sisters, sacrifice. It's going to require some selflessness. Where does knowing and being known in this community fit on your priority list? How does it show up on your Google Calendar? I know how difficult it is to stay intentional and consistently involved in this ministry. It's easy for me sometimes to justify my lack of involvement because of school or because of work, because of family time, because of kids' nap schedules, because of burnout, because the game is on, because I just don't feel like it. Now, hear me correctly. I'm not saying that some of those things aren't significant. I'm not saying that boundaries are not of value. What I'm saying is that our hearts can so easily find reasons, excuses to not lean into the thick of community. Amen? Leaning into community can throw your schedule out of whack. Sometimes it means waking up earlier than you want so that you can meet with that person that's going through something. Sometimes it means you're going to go to bed later than you like because you're going through something and you need to reach out to somebody. Leaning in means sometimes you actually answer your phone or return that email when someone at the church contacts you in need. It means picking up the phone when you have noticed that there's someone that's part of this community that you haven't seen in a while. 
Leaning in sometimes means committing to a community group with a bunch of people that are not like you culturally. Leaning in means that you submit yourselves to Christ's under-shepherds, your elders and deacons. It means that you don't presume to be the shepherds of your own lives. It means like Christ himself, you don't make significant decisions about your life unilaterally without looking to God's word and without seeking the counsel of the leaders which he has blessed you with. It means giving permission and space to people to speak into your life, to call you out when your life is drifting, drifting in a direction, in a way that's contrary to the gospel. It means that you might actually need to call your elder before you call your personal counselor. And leaning in means that you might actually have to start prioritizing the financial care of the church in your family's budget. Leaning in means signing up to take someone a meal when those emails come around, even when you don't feel like it. Leaning in sometimes means for a while serving in an area of ministry that you don't enjoy but are willing to sacrifice because there's a need. Leaning in sometimes means you're going to have people up in your house at inconvenient times. They'll stay too long. They'll talk too long. They'll eat up your food. Their kids will be touching stuff they shouldn't touch. That's what it means. Leaning in means you actually show up when you have nursery duty. It means even if you don't have nursery duty sometimes, you go downstairs and say, hey, do you need any help? Leaning into community means that our kids might actually need, not have to, but need to miss a soccer or basketball game or gymnastics tournament or swim meet in order to realize just how important fellowship and life sharing in the local church is. Leaning in means bringing your children to youth events, even if they don't feel like coming sometimes, even if you don't feel like driving them sometimes. Leaning in means deciding that being here on Sunday morning is a top priority. And it means that when you come, you actually open your mouth and you sing and you praise, not just for yourself, but for the person sitting beside you. It means being okay with the fact that some Sundays we'll sing a lot of songs you like and other Sundays we won't sing any that you like. Leaning in, especially an eclectic community means a whole lot of repentance and forgiveness. It means sometimes we're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to get up under each other's skin. Sometimes you'll be offended. Sometimes you'll feel misunderstood. It also means that sometimes you will offend somebody, and sometimes you will misunderstand others. Leaning in means sometimes you're going to have to engage in those hard conversations about race, about class, about gender, even when you don't feel like going there. Brothers and sisters, leaning in means signing up for some relinquishing. It means signing up for some humiliation in obedience and worship to the Lord. And in that selflessness, you will be blessed. You will grow in grace. And so will others. 
Look, I know there's a lot of you all that have been leaning in since the day you got here. And I want to tell you that I have personally been blessed. My family has been blessed from many of you leaning into our lives. And I want to thank you for being willing to get up in our mess and allowing me and us to do the same for you. I want to encourage you all, keep on leaning. Some of you leaned hard for a while. But for whatever reason, the past couple of months, past couple of years, you've laid back a little bit. I know it's hard to keep leaning in when you come in here and a lot of old faces that you knew and had relationships with are gone. And there's all these new faces. But the Lord calls those of us who have taken vows of membership, covenant vows, to keep on leaning in, to take the risk of building new relationships, to dive back into committed and consistent service. I encourage you all to lean back in. And some of you may have never experienced the hard blessings of leaning into church community. I encourage you all, if that's you, to make this a front burner issue in your life. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you claim him as your Lord, then I challenge you to commit yourself to join his bride, the church. If not here, somewhere that preaches the gospel and has a place for you to lean in. Amen? Ultimately, brothers and sisters, we know that none of us can lean in like this on our own. See, even though we are called to play the cover song of Christ's song of selflessness, the original artist has joined the band. Christ has given us himself through the Holy Spirit, allowing us to play this song for real. It takes the Holy Spirit, y'all, to sustain the lean. Let's trust the Lord together to keep us leaning. In closing, I want us to reread the Belhar Confession out loud together. And I want us to read it through the lens of all the Lord has spoken to us this morning. Let's read it together. And let's read it like we believe it. We believe that Christ's work of reconciliation is made manifest in the church as the community of believers who have been reconciled with God and with one another. We believe unity is both a gift and an obligation for the church of Jesus Christ and that this unity must become so that the world may believe that separation, enmity, and hatred between people and groups is sin, which Christ has already conquered. Amen. We believe that we share one faith, have one calling, 
are of one soul and one mind, have one God and Father, are filled with one spirit, are baptized with one baptism, eat of one bread, and drink of one cup, confess one name, are obedient to one Lord, work for one cause, and share one hope. Together come to know the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ. Together are built up to the stature of Christ, to the new humanity. Together know and bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ, that we need one another and upbuild one another admonishing and comforting one another, that we suffer with one another for the sake of righteousness. Pray together, together serve God in this world, and together fight against all that may threaten or hinder this unity. Amen? Amen? Amen. What a beautiful picture. I want to see this made manifest to a greater level in our church. Anybody else want to see that? Yes. 